Today's passage is out of Joshua 7, 1 through 26. It's basically the whole chapter. And by basically, I mean it's the whole chapter. (laughs) But let us stand and listen to the reading of God's word. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethavon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. The man went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, and he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, will surround us and cut off your name from the earth, our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put among them their belongings, their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord shall take shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver, which is a lot of money by the way, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. 
And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they had laid them down before the Lord. Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. They brought them up to the valley of Acre, or Acre. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire, stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acre. What a story, huh? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you have already made it so very clear that you are here. Thank you for being throned on our praises. Thank you that this isn't just a Sunday morning activity to keep us busy. Thank you that you have met with us, are meeting with us, and are going to continue to meet with us. Oh, what a beautiful wonder and mystery it is to be in the presence of the Holy One. That even though we are lifting glory and honor and praise that is due to your name, you use that to transform us, to draw us deeper into your presence, that in there we may be found. Oh, Jesus, continue to speak to us today. We need you, Holy Spirit, to speak. Reveal and illuminate your word to us. Pierce the hardness of our hearts where there may be hardness. Pierce the parts that we hold back that there may be freedom. Speak to us today, Jesus. We ask and pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. And for one final time, good morning. Thank you. For those who I have not had the privilege and pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Tommy Bello. I'm the youth young adult pastor here at All Souls Community Church. And whether you're in person or online, we are really glad that you are here. If it's your first time or first-ish time, welcome. If you're a regular member, I'm sorry, regular attender or regular attender, I just said that. (laughs) Welcome back. But if you call this place home because you're a member, welcome home. We're glad you're here. Friends, This passage we just read that I promise you we're about to go through it is not an easy one to sit to and read through and listen. We just had this glorious session of praise and worship in the presence of Jesus and I basically just read 26 verses about sin. But friends, from the outset, I want to say this out loud. We as Christians or those who are considering following Jesus regard sin and talk about it in a different way. We do, because the one who has died on the cross and came back to life has already taken care of sin, amen? Amen. We do not talk about it from a position of despair or fear. We talk about it from a position that understands that our good God reigns victorious on that throne. And so, friends, as I'm about to pray, and I'm going to ask that you join in me with this, do not listen to what we have to to say this morning with apprehension and fear, with anxiety and anger. Those are the things that are going to prevent you and that the enemy wants to use to stop you from commuting and hearing what Jesus has to say to you today. 
We do not have to be afraid of sin. We're going to talk about it because the Bible talks about it. But we're also going to talk about the one who has done something about it. We're going to talk about him more. So to that end, let's pray one more time. Jesus, in our own strength, we cannot do anything. Prayer would be useless unless there is an actual God that we're praying to. Our prayers would fall on deaf ears unless there was one who was actually listening. And our prayers would be empty unless there's one who has given us his spirit, unless there's one who has given us the authority on which heaven is governed to make our prayers a reality as we aligned with your will. And so, Jesus, this morning, we declare to the spirit of fear, be gone in Jesus' name. To the spirit of anxiety, we say, be gone in Jesus' name. To any of all things that do not want to agree with what Jesus has to do in our midst and say to us, be gone in Jesus' name. We do not fear you. We do not listen to you. Our ears and our hearts are attuned to the one who is the darling of heaven, the lamb who was crucified, the king of kings, as we sang, the holy one, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Lord Jesus, speak to your people today, we ask and pray. Amen. Customary sip. <laughs> Friends, we have been going through the book of Joshua in a series we have called Fighting for Our Inheritance. And this is everything we've talked about so far, which is a lot. Thank God for YouTube, because you can just go back and watch it. But here's what I want to say about all of this. All of this. We call this series Fighting for Our Inheritance for a reason. This is how we fight for our inheritance. If you wanted to, Tommy, what does that look like? Here it is. It's the strong and courageous because Jesus is with us. It's the fighting for each other instead of with each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The things that we review and recap for you every single week because we want you to catch this. This is what, looking, this is what it looks like to fight for our inheritance and to understand and believe that God has always been fighting for our inheritance on our behalf. But this morning, friends, to begin to unpack what this text has to reveal to us, I want to look at this very pretty picture with you. This is a ripple. A ripple is the waves or series of waves that come out when something breaks the surface of water. Catch the right light or put on the right filters on a camera and it can look stunning and gorgeous. But we use things like ripples to explain a phenomenon that we all experience in our life that we call the ripple effect. Where a profound moment, maybe good, maybe bad, maybe something in between, happens in our lives. Maybe on purpose, maybe not. And it has severe, profound impact into who we are and how we are growing as people. We all have them if we could spend just a second to think about it. An easy one I can tell you is for anybody who's a parent in this room or watching online, the second that firstborn child of yours was born, everything changed. But there are also horrible examples we can give too, like when a dear loved one passes. That has a ripple effect and everything changes. Friends, do you know what is the single most important ripple moment in all of the course of human history. It has affected every single human being that ever was, that currently is, and ever will be. This is not a rhetorical question. Take a second and think about it, and let me cut you off from the outset. It's not Jesus coming and dying on the cross, because you have to accept that invitation, and you have to bow to his lordship. It's sin. It's Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve ate what we are usually refer to as that apple or whatever that fruit was, everything changed. 
And we are still living in the ripple effects of that. Church, this morning, this is where we're going. The ripple effects of sin and the redemptive responses of the Lord. Do not separate the two parts of that sentence. We're not talking about sin, and then we're talking about the Lord. We're talking about the ripple effects of Genesis 3 as we see it in our passage. And the redemptive responses of the Lord, what Jesus has come and done about that. That's the news our hearts need to hear. We have three couplets of points. I call it couplets because if you want to get really into it, it's six, but it's not really six because we're going to talk about ripple effect, we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about ripple effect, we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about ripple effect, and then we're going to talk about Jesus, right? So trouble upon the community and hope and rest for the community, losing ground and consecration, generational curses, breaking and blessing. So first, trouble upon the community. To understand what's happening in Joshua 7, we need to remember what Pastor Will preached upon just last week. The fall of Jericho has just happened one chapter ago. And as they are marching around the city for that final time, God gives instructions to his people through Joshua as to what they are to do when they go into the city. It starts at around verse 16 or 15 in Joshua 6. But the one we need to remember this morning is when God says, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. God has told them in no uncertain terms, that city and that people and those possessions that you're going to see in front of you are born of evil, are aligned with evil, are full of their hearts of evil intents and purposes. They are in outright, consistent rebellion against the only God who lives. And so that's why God tells them to do harem warfare. We know in the New Testament that Paul teaches us for the wages of sin is death. Friends, never be surprised that when we align ourselves with the things that are not of God, it only takes us to one place and one place only. Death. And so God tells them to keep themselves from the things that are devoted to destruction. But in the very first verse of our chapter, God makes it clear they didn't do that. But we need to remember, who is it that broke faith? In our modern translations in our Bible, the subtitle for the chapter says the sin of Achan. Achan's the one who broke faith. And yet God says, under no uncertain terms, verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith. What? What are, what are we missing here? It's this idea. One person's sin can bring them all trouble because God has always seen his people as one group or one entity. This was actually the second sermon in this series that we're still going through that we preach that as they are going to get ready into the promised land, God is reminding Joshua, and Joshua is reminding the people of the covenant that some of them have made years and years before when they got their piece of the land for their tribes on the other side of the Jordan, where God is reminding them and teaching them, we must fight with each other, alongside each other, because we will either all make it or we will all fall. The way we've been saying that, to remember it briefly, is that our lives are group projects. There's no solo adventures in the family of faith. And so when you remember that, you realize then that this is how God has always seen his people. Always seen his people. When you look at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 26, John 10, 
God has always entreated with his people as one entity, one person. But there are two powerful examples the Bible gives us as to how this spiritual idea is actually true. The first is in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul himself says, though you are many members, you are all part of one body. That's why the ear can't say to the foot, I'm more valuable than you, or I don't need you. Or the hand say to the eye, I'm more valuable than you, I don't need you. Or, oh, woe is me, I'm only a nose. I'm not that important to the body. And God says through Paul, we are one body. What about in Revelation 19? The marriage, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the, the, the supper of the lamb. I almost had that backwards, but it's okay. Where the church is referred to as the what of Christ. If Jesus is the husband, the church is the, the bride, not brides. The Bible does not teach polygamy. We see it a lot, but we also never see God say that that's okay. We are not the brides of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. There's a spiritual reality that has always been at play that God entreats and treats his people as one entity. And so when you consider that, whether we like it or not, it starts to make sense then that the sin of one can sully, taint, poison, and ruin the whole. If you don't believe me, just listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, who says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because a little yeast, as any baker will tell you, makes the whole dough rise. A little yeast makes the whole dough rise. And Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 16 when his disciples are going, are you talking about bread? And Jesus says, man, I love you so much, I'm not talking about bread. <laughs> He says, beware the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because they're giving false teaching. Their pride is leading people to believe false things and thus live in false realities chasing after Yahweh. Their teaching is sullying and tainting the whole. But friends, even if you needed more than that, believe it or not, we all believe that the sin of one can affect the whole. I can prove it to you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. This is core to the gospel. Adam sinned, which is why we have sin. One man's sin affected the whole. But friends, let's not also be deceived. The opposite is true, too. Therefore, as the trespass of one led to common condemnation for all men, so the act of one, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We believe this, actually, friends. We don't believe we all earn our salvation. We don't believe we need to uh, hit a certain standard before Jesus' love and his salvific works somehow now apply to us. We don't believe that. That is works-based faith. That's literally every other religion. Deserve a spot amongst the divine, they say. And here's just our flavor and way of how you do it. No. The truth of reality is the exact opposite. One man has damned you, but one man will save you. Wow, that is something we need to hear and a reality that we need to keep hold on as we keep reading through this passage. Now, 
Here's the hard part. We hear that the sin of one can affect the many. There's a couple different reactions we can have to that. One might be pride. Why should I have to deal with their issues? Why does my life have to be affected by their lack of humility? Why, I'm following Jesus faithfully. I'm doing the things I know I should be doing. I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly trying. Why does their issues come back on me? That's a fair question, friends. The other response might be fear. Tommy, are you saying that I could do something that's so bad? I will affect the faith negatively of every single person I come across. Please do not say that's true. Because that is a burden I cannot bear. Those are real questions to ask, friends. If that is where your heart is at, do not dismiss it. Because we said earlier, and I will say again and again, yes, we are talking about the ripple effects of sin, but we're talking about the redemptive responses of the Lord. In Joshua 7, let's see if you caught this detail. At the very tail end of the passage, it says, they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Does that sound familiar? They built an Ebenezer where they stoned Achan so that they would remember, so that they would remember that God was here and God met them, just not in the way that they were expecting. Why does that matter? Friends, Ebenezers are not just these cool art projects that they did every so often as they made their way into the promised land. They remembered those moments and stories. They told them to their children and their children and their children. They stood as signposts to where God has been and what God has done in their midst. This is history that is baked into their blood, literally. So can you imagine having a part of your spiritual legacy that is a constant reminder of trouble? Do you remember that one time we all got into trouble? Yeah, I remember Hey, do you remember that one time we really messed up? Yeah, I remember. That's disheartening. It really is. These Ebenezers are a callback to what Joshua did in chapter 4. When we had that duct tape river and we had that our Ebenezer that we built. But if you also catch in the same part that this verse is in, of the chapter, they refer to that place as the Valley of Acre, or the Valley of Acre. I'm just going to say Acre going forward. They refer to it as the Valley of Acre, which literally translates to the Valley of Trouble, because there, they had trouble. Could you imagine such a significant part of your history being baked into the idea of remembering this, that valley there was trouble? The Valley of Acre gets mentioned two more times in the Old Testament. Where is the redemptive response of the Lord? Hosea 2.15. And there I will give her, Israel, the vineyards, and make the valley of Acre, the valley of trouble, a door to what? Hope. Hope. If the response of your heart has been, Tommy, I don't want to find myself in a situation where my sin can so taint the whole, I can't handle that. I can't be another screw-up. I can't add one more thing to the plate on other people because they have busy lives too and they're faithfully trying to follow Jesus or they're trying to figure it out. I can't be the reason they don't find Jesus or they can't go into his presence. God says that place of trouble will become a door of hope. 
that you can see far beyond the effects of your own sin to see far, how far-reaching the hope of Jesus goes. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth and at the time when she came out of the land of Israel, right, the land of Egypt. How about Isaiah 65.10? Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Acre a place for herds to lie down. Rest. When trouble is brewing at our door, when it feels like trouble is constantly following us around, we can't seem to shake it, our mistakes constantly seem to weigh on us and seem to make us make more mistakes, when we are feeling the guilt and the weight of our sin and it feels like we cannot shake it, God says there will be rest in that place. This, it's not a great picture I know, this is what the Valley of Acre looks like today. You hopped on a plane and you went to the Middle East, you're going to find this. Does this look like rest? Does this look like hope? Nothing's growing here except this one shrub, and I'm sure it's barely hanging on. This is not a picture of hope and rest. They would have built stones here and remembered the arid environment that reflected the arid environment of their hearts. This is a dry and desolate place, and all we found here was nothing good. And God says it is in that very place where you thought you could find nothing I will give you hope, and I will give you rest. Hope for the disheartened heart, and rest for the weary soul. We need that. We need that. Live life long enough, and you realize, if I don't have hope and strength and rest from somewhere else besides me, I have nothing. I have nothing. I won't make it to the end. I'll make it to 75 or 80 or 90, sure, but I'll be dead at 20. I won't make it. And God says, I got you. What you can't do, I can. The very thing that you so desperately need to make it out of that valley of trouble, I can and will give you. So here's a 60-second reflection point. Church, where do you feel like all you do, all you do, is bring trouble. God says it's exactly there. I will bring hope and rest. Losing ground. In Joshua 7, verse 12, I'm going to read it again just so we can get the full breadth of it. Therefore, the people of Israel, remember our first point, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they, they, they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. We're tempted to look at that and say, oh, that's not good. They're not going to win their battle. They already lost. Did you remember the first part of the passage? The spies report they are so few in number. I don't know if you know anything about ancient warfare, but ancient warfare only relies on two things, tactics and numbers. And even if your tactics stink, if you have enough numbers, you'll win. You'll just overrun the enemy. They have enough numbers. If you're really curious as to how much they have, look ahead to next week in Joshua 8. 
They have the numbers. They could, they could sweep the floor with them and wipe them off the face of the planet. But they said, no, no, just take two or 3,000, that'll be enough. That still means, in their minds, they have the tactics and the numbers. Because there are so few of them. They're not a problem. And yet they still lost. Why do they still lose? Because the enemies that God is talking about here are not just the people in AI. As we have been talking about consistently through the book of Joshua, the earthly realm and the spiritual realm are much closer than we like to think. And so what God is absolutely saying here is they are having a physical issue because of a spiritual root. The same way that if you get sick with the flu, yes, this is going to sound familiar to some of you, just pretend like it's new. If you get sick with the flu and you get meds, to treat your symptoms, is that treating the bacteria or the virus of the flu? No. You gotta get at the heart of the problem in order to take care of the symptoms, to truly take care of the symptoms. So they have lost ground. What does that mean? I'm gonna explain it to you using one of the best movies, in my opinion, to have ever existed. Star Wars 3. Star Wars 3, this is the battle that's on Mustafar. And if you can't tell from this screen, look at the ones on your left and right. You have Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi up on the hill here and his apprentice about to go to the dark side, Anakin Skywalker, who, if you don't know by this point, becomes Darth Vader, evil incarnate, evil incarnate. They are having this fight, and it has been a very long fight. And at this point, Anakin is floating on a magnetized piece of metal over a literal river of lava. It's not good. It's not good. And he stares up at Obi-Wan, and Obi-Wan with desperation and a smidge of hope and exhaustion stares at his beloved Padawan, stares at his beloved friend and says, it's over, Anakin. I have the high ground. It's one of the most awesome lines in all of Star Wars. And I don't know if you remember the next part of the clip, but Eric, Anakin stares him down with evil in his face. And he says, one of the next greatest lines in Star Wars, in my opinion, you underestimate my power. Friends, what is happening here that Obi-Wan realizes that Anakin does not is that Obi-Wan has the high ground. There is no way Anakin's going to win, which is ironic because Anakin's the better lightsaber dueler. He's more in tune with the Force. He has more battles under his belt. He has more victories and conquered foes under his belt. By all metrics of standard of success, Anakin should sweep the floor with Obi-Wan. Sweep the floor with him. And yet he doesn't. Anakin decides to give it to his bravado, and what I will say is his sin. Does a cool little double front flip, tries to land behind Obi-Wan, and Obi-Wan cuts him off at the waist. Doesn't even make it to the ground. Anakin then slides down towards the river of lava, and Obi-Wan wails, you were the chosen one. You were supposed to save us. Oh, it gives you tingles. It's such a good scene. Go watch it, seriously. But why are we talking about this? Because this idea is explaining what is happening in our passage. They, they, because they kept the devoted things to themselves, they have committed spiritual abdication. They have allowed themselves to be defiled by the things that would separate them from God. That's Psalm 51. Sin separates us from God. Never underestimate the power of sin, friends. 
It's the one thing Jesus came to die for. However, never overestimate the power of sin because Jesus did not stay dead. So sin was like, oh, I got you. And Jesus is like, I have the high ground. <laughs> You're not going to win. But friends, it's this idea that encapsulates that when we allow ourselves to, to be defiled by sin, let's remember we're talking about a ripple effect of sin. When we allow ourselves to be defiled by sin, we are saying to God, God, even though you are good and holy, the two can commune. And God says in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter and in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, I am holy and I am light. There's no darkness in me. Where I am, sin will never be. Which is why God says in this passage, I will be with you no more. It's not a phrase of abandonment. It's not that God has suddenly turned his back on them and forsaken his covenant just like they forsaked it. He's making a spiritual statement here that says, you have aligned yourselves with something that is not of me. And the two will not mix like oil and water. So until that is taken care of, you have given up the high ground. And the things that in my power and in my name and in my authority, not theirs, that would you have saw overcome, now overcome you. Yes, it is this actual reality that the thing that puts chinks in our Holy Spirit armor is sin. And it gives access, it gives a key to the house that is the temple of the Lord. It does not give ownership. I want you to be clear about this. But if someone banged on your door and said, I have a right to come in, you'd be like, you're crazy, this is my house, get out. And then what if they showed back up with 20 of their worst friends and a key? They don't own the house, but they're going to run amok. Paul talks about it like this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Remember our first point. We're all members of one body. And your anger do not sin. Why? Because anger can, is always sinful? No, the Lord has righteous anger. And your anger do not sin. Why? Do not, the sun, let, do not let the sun go down while you are angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. You ever try to close the door on somebody and they just stuck their foot out and went, wait! That's exactly what Paul is saying. Sin allows access to something that only God says he should have access to. Us. And when there is sin that has not been dealt with, where there is darkness that we have communed with, we have abdicated the high ground. We have said to God in our fear, in our pride, in our anger, anxiety, whatever, I'm good. I don't need you. We have abdicated the high ground. So what do we do about that? <laughs> I don't know about you. I don't want darkness and evil and sin running amok in my life. We have plenty of that in the world, unfortunately. What do we do about that? What's really cool, and it shows the heart of God, is that from the very next verse where God tells them what they need to do, I'm sorry, when the, the very first, the very next verse after God tells them what's wrong with them, he tells them what to do. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. It goes on and on and on. Well, what is consecration? What is that? It is simply this idea right here. Separation from defilement and being cleansed. We get a picture of it in Leviticus 8 when Aaron and the first line of priests are being devoted to do the service of God for God's people. They are told to strip out their garments that have been sullied, 
keep in mind, they have just been wandering through the wilderness. They don't actually have a lot of places to clean. They don't actually have a lot of clean clothes. And God says, get rid of those old garments. Get rid of the things that defile you. Stay away from that. Put it away. Have no part and parcel with it. Put it away. Be done with it. And then watch as you come to me and I make you clean. It is a beautiful marriage of owning our part to play but realizing the better and more important part is the cleansing that we can't do but that Jesus always does. Always does. Because this idea of consecration prepares us for repentance. It prepares us, I'm sorry, prepares us for confession. Now, depending on how you grew up, that is a word you may or may not like. For those of us who were raised in Catholic settings or in the Catholic Church, that can have a lot of particular imagery and meaning. And that's okay. For some of us who have grown in different kind of church contexts, whether it be evangelical or any other kind of church denomination, it may, it may be something you've heard of a billion times, but maybe the weight of it has not been impressed upon you. And maybe for, for some of us who have no idea about this thing we call Jesus and following him and church, and I don't know, I'm just trying to figure this out. What is true repentance and forgiveness? Is it just saying I'm sorry and being done with it? No. True repentance and confession has nothing to do with behavior modification. It has to do with a realignment of your very heart, mind, and soul to your creator, to Yahweh himself. Friends, I want to be very clear Repentance and true confession is difficult on your own. On your own. But James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. To one another. Because the rest of that verse says, because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 1 John 1.9 says, to confess our sins to him that he may cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, if we cannot admit and own before our God, who knows it anyway, the things that we have allowed to come between us and him, there will be no cleansing. There will be no freedom. Let's be very clear, though. It is not a shame or an act of condemnation. God is not waiting behind the scenes to be like, all right, you're about to confess. Here comes the lightning. Like, no. He asks us and he teaches us to repent and to confess because it frees us. And in, in, in light of our passage, it gives us back the higher ground. It gives us back the authority that Jesus gives us. Not that the authority suddenly went away, but there was something that interrupted Remember, it's a ripple effect of sin. Just like sin interrupted perfect communion between God and mankind, sin again can interrupt the authority that Jesus has given on behalf of those who follow him and serve in his name, which, by the way, is all of us if you've accepted Jesus. It's not just the leaders. But friends, true repentance and confession means we do not deny. If you're denying it, you're not actually going to do it. It doesn't mean you blame if it's somebody else's problem but not yours, but you feel like you have to own it, it's probably your problem. You don't excuse. You know, I'm sorry, I was really grumpy, but please forgive me. You've not felt the weight of that separation. We don't justify or rationalize. 
we bare our souls to the one who knows it anyway and say, oh, Jesus, please. Jesus, please, I'm afraid that you're just going to burn me and let me have it. I'm afraid that if I, let, if I even say it out loud or admit it to anybody else, this is going to be my undoing. That's fear speaking again. We don't ever see Jesus do that. We don't ever see Jesus do that. Remember, this is a redemptive response of the Lord. Why is he asking them to be consecrated, to remove the things that would defile them, but just jump ahead to chapter 8? They're going to go fight AI again. This time they're going to win. God knows that that repentance and that confession is not a thing that he wants to beat them over the head with. He wants to free them. Why? Why do you think Jesus might come to set the captives free? Which he quotes from Isaiah. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he knows what it will take to set you free. He knows what it will take to set you free. So friends, here's your reflection point again. Where is there sin in your life? That because of fear or because of pride, you've not been able to bring it to Jesus. Today is your day. Jesus, whether it be in this moment, the moments later, the moments afterwards, days, weeks, months, years down the road, constantly remind us, Jesus, speak to our hearts and our souls that you're not looking for reasons to kick us out. That you've accomplished everything that is necessary to bring us back in. Jesus, speak to us. Let's not be afraid to bring our sin to you. Friends, our last point, generational curses. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you can all have a seat. <laughs> it's not done. I ain't done. For, oh, no, we'll be done with this in four minutes, I promise. But generational curses. What is a generational curse? There's a lot of hullabaloo about generational curses and curses and that kind of thing. I want to hone our attention and our focus for just a second. We're talking about generational curses, a very specific type of curse. It's a spiritual legacy we inherit from our ancestors because of their unconfessed and undealt with sin. This is very particular. I did not say it was your sin. But remember point one. One sin affects the whole. One sin affects the whole. This is not your sin, but you are certainly feeling the effects of it. Friends, another way of talking about this is a spiritual predisposition to sin in particular ways. It doesn't own you. But the same way we would tell a recovering addict to not go near the places that would feed his or her addiction, it will bring you closer to the thing that will tempt you to sin. What are spiritual curses, oh, I'm sorry, what are generational curses not? They're not sin in and of themselves. They are the ripple effect of sin. There is no generational curse without sin. They're not just your bad habits. If you can't stop chewing your nails, it's not because your great-grandmother had a bad nail-chewing issue. No. Although, let's be clear, 
your bad habits could absolutely be influenced by generational curses. Make no mistake. They're not just genetic factors. High cholesterol runs in the men in my family on my dad's side. That's not just a generational curse. Might be influenced by it, but it, that in itself is not a generational curse. Generational curses aren't demons. But you best better believe that if there's any chink in that Holy Spirit armor that they can use against you, they're going to use it. And this is one of their mightiest weapons. Generational curses do not make our decisions for us. They are not a blanket excuse. Oh, I'm sorry I've been sinning against you that way for 13 and a half weeks straight. You know, my grandfather did that. His great-grandfather did that. It's just a thing we do. Sorry. No, it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's also not generational fatalism. What do I mean by that? It's not, oh, because all of my ancestors have done this, that means I'm bound to do it too. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That is not the hope of the gospel. That is not the hope of the gospel. The Bible does not teach generational fatalism. You are not damned to decision simply because your ancestors did that. But what we are talking about is there will be a disposition to do it unless it is dealt with. Remember this first point, friend. The trouble plus our lineage is going to equal curses. It is a Western ideology that teaches us that we are blank slates. It is Western arrogance and pride, to be frank, friends, that teaches us that I am the master of my environment and not the other way around. Sociology, psychology, anthropology, biology, all back up, all of it very vehemently back up the reality we've been talking about that the Bible has always been teaching. You are much more a product of your environment, who raised you, who you grew up around, the, the things you were exposed to, then you realize. Do not believe you are a blank slate. Do not believe that you have to be slave to those things. Now, the one thing that, they, that might hang us up on this is we say to ourselves, wait, Jesus died on the cross and handled my sin. Absolutely, yes and amen. But this is birth of sin. This is not sin in and of itself. Jesus Christ dying on the cross took care of the power of sin. We are not slaves to it. And the penalty of sin. I don't have to fear death. But it did not take care of the presence of sin. Not yet. That's why we still wake up when we live in a sinful, broken world. That's why we wake up and things still aren't okay. Jesus has made it happen yet, what we call the already and the not yet. But when it will happen is when he comes again. And then he says, okay, that last one, it's done. It's done. This is why generational curses can still prevail. It's not because Jesus hasn't done anything about it. It's because it in and of itself is not sin. It is the unholy child of sin. And it affects us. It does. You want to know how I know? Oh, I jumped ahead. But here's some examples of generational curses. <laughs> Deuteronomy 5, the curse of bowing down to idols and false gods and demons. Deuteronomy 27, curses incurred by sinning and forsaking the covenant. That Romans 5 passage we quoted earlier, that the trespass of one man has brought sin to all. In Galatians 3, you know what Paul calls that? A generational curse. The first generational curse. Cursed us all with sin. But friends, we believe the opposite. We believe in generational blessings. We sing that here. May favor be upon you for a thousand generations. That's a generational blessing. Where do we get that? Do we just make that up? No. That comes from Deuteronomy 5. That comes from Deuteronomy 28. The blessings of rich obedience. That comes from that Romans 5 passage we talked about earlier. Where when it says the righteous act of one man brings justification to all. You know what Paul calls that in Galatians 3? A blessing. We believe in this. We actually do. But why are we talking about it as a ripple effect from our passage? 
Because Joshua 1, 7, 1 tells us, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. What's that about? Genesis 38 tells the story of Judah and Tamar. This this Judah, right here, that Judah. Sometimes the Bible refers to the clans of people, and it was way, way, way in the past, so there's no way it's actually that person. No, no, he's talking about the actual Judah that was the patriarch of the clan of Judah. And what basically boils down to in this story is that Tamar, who is his daughter-in-law, eventually has to be dismissed from his house, or she leaves, because he doesn't have a son for her to marry anymore. Tamar married one of his oldest sons. That son died. The next brother in line does his due diligence and is supposed to marry her to take care of her and keep her in the line. He dies. Judah only has one son left at that point, and he's too old to marry. So Judah says to her, says to her, just wait. Just stick around. Which is actually a piss poor response. Judah should have been taking care of her. But so what ends up happening is Tamar disguises herself as a cult prostitute. And Judah, after the death of his wife, decides he needs to console himself because his loins are burning. And he goes to visit a cult prostitute. And guess who he sleeps with? His daughter-in-law. It is the story of a man taking things that does not belong to him. Does that sound familiar? because that's what Achan did. Unless you think, oh, I, I, I guess that could be a generational curse. Go back and read those Deuteronomy 5 passages I quoted for you, where God says, I'll visit the iniquity of the sin to the third or fourth generation. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Whoa. That should give you pause. But what's the redemptive response of the Lord? Tommy, am I just going to be a slave to generational curses that may be happening in my life that I may or not be aware of that's there? Absolutely not by the name of Jesus. Friends, I have a question for you. The old hymn that Robert Lowley, a Baptist minister in 1867, wrote based on Hebrews 9 and 1 John 1, what washes away my sin? What can make me whole again? Yes, I want you to sing it. Yes. For my cleansing, this I see. But the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Two more. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection may not have immediately taken care of generational curses, but the same thing that covers our sin once and for all is the same thing that breaks a curse. We plead the blood of Jesus over it. Nothing beats Jesus. Nothing. We have no reason to fear that generational curses and things of evil are going to be waging war in my life and winning me. We simply say, in the name and authority of the heavenlies, of the one who sits on that throne by the blood of the Lamb, no! And we are free. We are free from those curses. And what both Jesus and Paul teaches us is for that those who may have cursed us, we bless them. We don't fight evil with evil. We fight evil, not just with good, with holy. With holy. 
friends, don't miss this. Breaking and blessing is usually not a solo activity. Remember the sermon from, remember the second sermon in our series? Remember our first point. We're in this together. Our lives are group projects. You do not have to feel the weight and the burden to try and deal with these things on your own. Let Jesus use his body to come and minister to you and set you free. Hallelujah. Friends, the plan was never for you to wrestle with these questions on the screen today, believe it or not. It'll show up in, your lead, in the leader guides if you're part of a disciple group, and I hope that you are. If not, you can take a screenshot of it now. Or if you want to make sure you don't want to forget, just contact the office or contact me. But these are questions I want to encourage us to wrestle with this week. Where has my sin brought trouble upon the community? Where has my sin abdicated the high ground and made my heart hard towards God? And what are the generational curses in my family that God wants to break? We're not asking you to look at these things simply because I want to give you homework or because it's, you know, if these are things that are hard to do. We're asking you to consider these questions so that the redemptive responses of the Lord meets you in them. These are simply avenues that say, Jesus, there's more going on in my life than I bear to understand, that I know what's going on and what I can do about. Meet me in this, Jesus. Set me free. Cleanse me. Give me back your authority. Give me back your intimacy and presence. I want more of it. Fill me with your knowledge. Fill me with your word. Fill me with your love and grace. Don't let these things be things that deal with me. Let these things be things that, because of Jesus, I deal with them. That I deal with them. We have a fresh opportunity, friends, to take our faith wherever it may be and take a big step forward and to say, God, whatever you need to do in my life, you have the control. Don't let words like sin and trouble and high ground, don't let these things scare you. They didn't scare Jesus. Don't let these things take you off course and take your gaze away from his face that says even this is hard to break through, to understand, to really navigate. Jesus, I'm going to cling to you like a drowning man clings to a buoy, and you come see me to safety. And Jesus says, I will. I have. I can. I promise. Let's pray. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other founts I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll overcome, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll reach my home, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Glory, glory, thus I sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise to this I bring, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus, we plead your blood on us today. Come move in our midst. Come remove the shackles and obstacles of sin, of darkness, anything that would stand in the way between us and you, Jesus, and meet with us. We are desperate for you, Jesus. We're desperate for you. We don't want to walk out of here the same. We don't want to walk out of here or log off online just having done another social ritual. Jesus, we want to meet with you that you would cleanse us that you would set us free, that you would transform us in ways we didn't think were possible, that you would break the things that have been lurking in the background that I might not have even been aware of or there. Jesus, that I would believe that I'm not actually a pox on my community, but because of your spirit in me, I could be a blessing just like you were, Jesus. 
Jesus, I say again, protect our minds. May we take every thought captive. May we silence every voice that wants to tell us now to focus on the sin. The sin is not the point. The point is what Jesus has done to overcome it and to redeem it. Jesus, may our gaze be on you. On that old rugged cross where your blood was spilled, may that our gaze be on that grave that lies empty forever. May our gaze be in the throne of heaven of which you stand upon victoriously. Jesus, may our gaze be not on the things that we think hold us down in sin, but may our gaze be on the one who has come to set us free, to cleanse us, to heal us because of his great love for us. Oh, Jesus. Church, we are about to sing, Lord, I need you. And one of the verses in Lord, I need you, I'm going to botch it, but it basically says, where sin runs deep, your grace is there. It runs more. And where your grace is found, Lord, there you are. Your sin wants to make you and convince you that it's a thing that needs to tear you down. What we actually have is a beautiful opportunity to have it point us towards the one who has already taken care of it and wants to take care of it. It says, let my grace wash over you. Let my grace wash over you. Let my grace wash over you. Let my grace wash over you because nothing beats the blood. Nothing beats the blood.